This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of All Possibilities is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. What does it mean to be a 4D thinker? June Choi uses her ability to see things play out over time to help her in business and in life. As founder and CEO of Serval Ventures, a venture builder and investor in emerging tech, she's fascinated by where transformative tech meets human evolution, from the fields of AI, blockchain, mixed reality, and quantum computing. You'll hear how her Korean-American and Midwest roots shaped her early career, how she's working to support an ecosystem of startups, and be sure to stick around for an intuitive reading that sparks a discussion on their latest project, as well as on human transcendence. Welcome to the All Possibilities podcast. I'm your host, Julie Chan, intuitive life purpose coach and founder of Being My Purpose. Together, let's embark on a discovery of all possibilities. June, it is so great to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for bringing your interns as well. I'm going <laughs> to pull them into the podcast as well. Shout out to Singapore and Belgium. <laughs> Thanks for lending us your, the interns. <laughs> talent, global talent. Uh-huh. So let's start off by having you share with us what brought you to this point in your life from <sighs> a career and also a spiritual personal growth perspective. <laughs> let's talk about everything. Let's start from okay. day one. <laughs> I was just talking about this with my interns earlier um, because Depending on how you count it, I've had like four or five careers. Um, I am an immigrant, Korean, American, uh, and not your stereotypical one. (laughs) So you're the rebel. (laughs) Yes, I was a straight A student, but I didn't go into medicine or engineering. Uh, My sister was the engineer. Uh, (laughs) You were safe. (laughs) I was supposed to go to med school. um, And I didn't realize until kind of recently in my life that I am a four-dimensional thinker. So that means I see things play out. Um, So I was was, uh, in organic chemistry looking around, and I saw my life in the medical profession play out. And I thought... Uh-uh, no, I don't want this. <laughs> so what, what did you see? As I you saw, saw a kind of very proscribed life. And it was a, you know, it was a big, uh, what do you call it? A big uh, lecture course, right? And uh, I was at a school where Greek life was very prominent. And I was looking around going, oh, so if I stay and go into medicine... I'll probably end up having to marry one of these guys and I'll have their spawn. <laughs> and I thought, have their spawn. I like that. And that was the word that came to my head. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. And I also had a Friday afternoon lab. And I love lab, but I didn't love it on Friday afternoon because mm-hmm. I would see all the other students getting ready for the weekend. And I realized, 
ah, this is my life playing out, and I don't want this either. So I got to change my major. <laughs> so um, that was like the beginning. And from there, it was just uh, figuring out a lot of what I didn't want. Because in some ways, um, growing up as an immigrant child, I didn't have a lot of opportunities or possibilities put out in front of me. And then... Um, and where were you growing up? I was growing up in the Midwest. Mm. So, yeah, Let's there weren't the many Asians for there. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm older, uh, so there wasn't a lot of Asians there. And I literally really felt like a complete alien. I could have dropped out of Mars. Same diff, right? Um, when I moved to New York for the first time, I walked around on the streets. And I'm like, I'm staying here because... I didn't stand out and people weren't staring at me. Whereas my entire life, I felt like there were eyes everywhere, people staring at me, right? Because I was the different one in the room. So, um, yeah, that was my growing up. Um, and so I was exploring a lot of different things. Uh, and then, you know, what do you do when you decide not to go to med school and <laughs> Can major. I decided I have no idea what I'm going to study now. Uh, I was a total bookworm and I thought they're going to give me a degree for reading books. Wow, this is the best deal ever. So I'm like, I'm going to get a lit degree. Um, and I knew my parents were going to totally wig out and my dad disowned me. So I also decided to study business Literally? as a minor, minor. Literally disowned me. So there was a holiday that I didn't go home um, because I wasn't their kid anymore. <laughs> it's a thing in mm. Asian culture, you because know. Of, because of simply from choosing yeah. a lit major. Because I had, you know, just like killed off the life that I was supposed to have, right? Mm. So um, I, um, I got a literature degree but did a business minor and – my phrase at that time was always like, I can still go to law school with a lit degree. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody I knew in law school was really miserable. And while one of my favorite courses was business law as an undergrad, I wanted to be a judge. But I realized, oh, you have to go to law school. And I don't want to go to law school. I just want to go straight to judge, pass, go. Mm. Um, but that wasn't allowed. So I couldn't do that. <laughs> so... I went, uh, there was one point where I was just really um, burnt out from school, from being a straight A student forever and ever. And I was just like, okay. And I was going to take a year off from school. And I had arranged everything. I had gotten a fellowship, deferred any student loans. And my parents disowned me for the second time because they're no like, <laughs> they're like, you're going to drop out of school. They're like, no way. You, you're no longer part of this family. <laughs> so I decided to stay in school, but I decided, okay, I'm just getting out of Dodge, but I didn't speak a language. And so I'm like, okay, England, they speak English there. I can go there. <laughs> So I did an internship in London, and I found an internship program that was a arts internship. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this arts internship. I'm going to try it out. Um, 
and I I interned at the South Bank Center. Um, mm. Oh, I also almost got detained at the airport because I said, I'm coming to do an internship. And they're like, what's that? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be working at the South Bank Center. And they oh. were about to arrest me because they're like, do you have papers? Right. I'm like, no. And I'm like, oh, I had no idea what the issue was, right? And then when I explained, no, I'm not getting paid. I'm a student. Then they finally let me go after a long time of talking to me. Um, but I interned at the South Bank Center. I was a liaison with the um, Indonesian embassy because they were doing – and the education department because they were doing an all-night Indonesian gamelan um, puppet show with a master puppeteer from Indonesia with court handmade courts court style gamelan set that had been a gift from the Indonesian government. So it was for the Indonesian community in London. They needed they wanted it to go well and they wanted someone to be the face, right? <laughs> to good to have an Asian face uh, for that program. Mm. Um, but I also had a supervisor who was like, "Why are you here?" Why are you doing this? Because um, my interests were actually pretty unconventional. Uh, I was interested in very avant-garde performance art. And she's like, you shouldn't be here. So she actually helped me get another internship in Brighton. And mm -hmm. so I was commuting from London to Brighton to do this panto. And pantos are this thing in London where they're just shows around Christmas time and I was like doing publicity on that. Um it was a James Bond spoof so they did very well. And I we got a lot of publicity for that. So started out in arts. Then I was like realized, oh yeah, I can't feed myself on arts cuz there was a whole year I almost got malnourished on ramen. That was all I can afford. Then um uh moved more into nonprofit administration. Um, paid a little bit better. Um, I was always on the business end, though, and I became a executive director very early, very young. Mm. I was 26, didn't know anything about what that meant, um, hadn't had any experience managing much of anything. Um, but the board was desperate. So then I had to learn a lot on my own. Um, and then I went into philanthropy from that. And then I, um, I, uh, not necessarily in sequential order, but somewhere along the way, I got divorced. I had a child. And then I was like, okay, I need to do something where I can take care of my child and not have a full-time job. So I started consulting. And I enjoyed consulting. I was doing strategy business consulting. And I did that for a long time so I could take care of my daughter, raise her. Um, I definitely um, took a lot of professional, um, I don't know, what do you call it, hits, right? Um, sacrifices uh, so that I could be home with her as much as possible. And then... Um, once she got older into middle school, I felt like I want to do something different. So then I started to teach entrepreneurship and met a lot of startups and then was like, okay, I really love startups. I love the speed. I love the tech, um, and decided I really wanted to do that, but I was resisting it for a while. Cause I'm like, 
I am a divorced mom with a child. I should be responsible. <laughs> I should have a job with benefits. And I, I tried really hard to have a straightforward job. And I was not very good at that, <laughs> at, at um, having that kind of lifestyle because I got really bored fast. And then uh, I finally made a decision. I'm like, you know what? I am her role model. I am her one female role model. So it's a risk, but I got to do this. I think I need to start my own company. And um, you notice I stuttered a little because that's how frightening it was. Um, I launched it. And when I when I really made that decision, uh, it was me embracing and saying, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, um, which I had resisted for a long time. And it was really the most kind of freeing thing because at heart, that is who I am. So I know, was that too long winded? <laughs> no, it, it kind of lets us see all the different facets of you and what you were, what you were willing to do for your daughter. And, and that takes a lot of courage. I mean, as, as a new mom myself, I definitely see priority shifting and things mm -hmm. when in the past it was very important, just no longer seem important anymore. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine and I were talking and this was before I started the company and I was struggling and uh, I wasn't happy. And I was like, oh, why do we do this? And she's like, we do it for our kids. We do it so that they have a different life than we have. And I'm like, yeah, right, right. That's it. <laughs> so uh, that helped reframe me. And I was like, yeah, I got to do that. So Terry Hong, thank you. <laughs> so this company you started is that Serval Ventures? That's Serval Ventures. Tell yeah. us about what it does. So um, when I was teaching, I was meeting a lot of startups and the startups were like, we can't afford you as a consultant. So will you be our advisor? So I was like, okay, I'm not sure what that means. But yeah, I know how to give advice. I'm a consultant. <laughs> so, Does like, that mean free work? <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't know the free part because I thought, okay, I'm getting something out of this, right? And they're like, yeah, you're going to get equity. And uh, I would... I, you know, I'm a 4D thinker. I'm a systems thinker. I know business. I know strategy. So they would be like, we want to do this. We want to get here. So I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, you need to do this. And I would lay it out for them. And then they would come back a month later. I'm like, okay, what you do? Nothing. I'm like, why? I told you exactly what you needed to do. And you'd be at such a different place right now. And uh, what became really apparent was, you know, young founders don't know what they don't know. Right. So I realized they were going out and talking to probably a dozen other people who are all giving them like conflicting advice. Right. So um, while I was an advisor, air quotes here, um, they weren't really listening to me. So I thought, OK, this is a waste of my time and energy and not bringing me any returns. So I'm like, all right, I need to. I think I need to be an investor because they'll listen to an investor, right? But when I thought about being an investor, I was like, uh, I before I launched Servo, I really studied startups. I studied, and there wasn't very much data at the time. There was like, that was five or six years ago. Um, 
even very little academic data. Um, I was studying accelerators, studying venture investment, and I realized there's been very little evolution. Um, accelerators were about four months long because that's what Y Combinator did in late 1990s and early 2000s when you could dev a reasonably acceptable tech product in four months because you know, not very many people knew how to do that. So you dev something, you know, halfway decent or half-assed and they'd be like, oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, people would be like, sure, we'll buy it. Um, and you could get a team and pretty much, you know, kind of solidly dev things on an ongoing basis in four months. And that's why accelerators are four months, but hasn't really evolved since then. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, Okay, technology has evolved so much and business models have evolved so much. Why aren't accelerators evolving? And then when I looked at venture investment, you know, venture investment is a Hail Mary spray and, you know, whatever you call that spray and pray, you know, uh, philosophy where I'm like, that's ridiculous. I, I was literally thinking... You could go to Vegas, play craps, and make just as much money doing that on a consistent basis because the, if you just play the odds, because the odds are in, you know, more in your favor than this is. So I thought, okay, what would evolve venture investment and how would the returns, could the returns be better? So I launched Servo with the thought of really trying to evolve venture investment. Um, I didn't know what that meant at the time. But I figured, we'll figure it out, right? So um, we launched a couple accelerator rounds. And at the beginning, it was like any founder, any stage, any startup, any stage, any industry. And people thought I was crazy. They're like, you need an industry vertical. And I'm like, but I understand. Our focus is going to be data and tech. And that cuts across all industries. But people kept saying, you're going to fail if you don't have a vertical. And I'm like, Okay. Um, no, I don't believe you. So I'm going to do my thing. <laughs> so, and at that time, verticals were big deals, right? Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a focus so much as much on data. And I still think people don't really understand data and how to use data um, or the potential for data, right? Um, there wasn't as much an understanding of how technology really plays around all industries, right? And now it, there used to be a saying, are you a tech company or not? Mm -hmm. Now it's like everybody's a tech company. Who's not a tech company, right? It's really a matter of what kind of tech company are you, right? So um, we were... And we were also trying to see, okay, what if we tried this? What if we tried that? What helps startups be more successful? Because also one of the core thesis was if startups are successful, we're going to be successful as investors. So, and out of all of that, then after like two accelerator rounds, it was very apparent. We had these companies that were at seed stage, but that was about the time when, you know, people were starting to lose money on startups, right? And the crash had happened. So people were starting to get more gun shy. And investors were starting to really move upstream. So they wanted to see, they weren't willing to fund um, just ideas anymore. They wanted to see more market traction. They wanted to really understand, you know, like, did the, did the entrepreneur have a 
background in doing this. They weren't willing to go with just pure newbies anymore. Um, they were starting to evolve their own um, philosophies about investing in startups. So at that time, then we shifted and we went into very quiet mode, working with a few startups to try and figure out how do we get them through this, you know, no man's land seed stage quickly so that they can get to a a round and where there's many more investors who are interested in investing because investment banks will call you and say, we have called us and said, we'd like to look at your deal flow when you get to series A. So, um, and then after doing that, we've come to a point where we've developed a innovation roadmap. So to back up a little bit, at every stage along the way, I've thought about, okay, what have we learned? And so we're taking very much a startup um, framework uh, mindset to all of this. What have we learned? What will what do we need to do differently? Um, what's working and not? How can we move this forward faster? Because speed is always an issue with startups. And we, I came to a couple points, um, main pain points as an investor, is that one, um, increasingly there was less tech people that were founders. It was a bunch of MBAs and business guys who were like, I have a great idea and I'm going to conceptualize this idea. Then I'm going to hire people to build it, right? Um, so what that meant was once they figured out what the concept was going to be and they figured out the conceptual part, then they had to go out and hire the most expensive people you can hire for a startup, tech people and or data science people, right? And because they need to hire the most expensive people, then they got to go out and raise money. So they spend a lot of time raising money um, instead of actually building their product and building their company and getting to market. And so um, then I started to think, well, how do we change that, right? And so we came to the uh, concept of we need to keep founders really focused. And if we can start with founders that are range, then it'll be much more interesting. So um, that's how the innovation roadmap developed to keep them focused. And then we also developed a coaching framework to help um, with sort of EQ and more tactical kind of approaches to how they're um, doing something really hard. So nowadays I say startups are kind of like um, more like alchemy, like medieval alchemy. We're like trying to take nothing like dirt, trying to make gold out of it. right? So and no one's figured out the formula yet. And everybody's trying to figure out the formula. We're trying to figure out the formula. I think we're closer than a lot of people, but no one's figured it out yet. Otherwise, there'd be nothing but successful startups out there. Coming up, you'll hear about what it means to be a 4D thinker. Do you have a story or a comment you'd like to share? I'd love to hear from you. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. You can also connect with me directly at my own website, beingmypurpose.com. 
Welcome to Hashtag Moms Got This. Get your mom life fix four days a week. I'm Michelle Park. And I'm Stacey Eagle. Together, we chatted up with a new boss mom each week about her journey and why she's got this. Make sure to subscribe and show us some love on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever the best podcasts are found. And remember, Mom's Got This. talked about this 4D way of seeing things through through my lens I think of a term called clear cognizance which is clear knowing so from the intuitive world it's you just know you don't know how you know but you're able to see um, and that's also clairvoyance but you're able to really identify what might ha- what the end destination might look like Can you talk more about this 4D way of thinking and how you discovered it? Maybe, um, you know, are there other people who you found share that way of seeing the world? So, um, uh, I think when you look at different kind of frameworks and modalities. People talk about things, and if you really distill the way people talk about certain things, it really comes down to very similar basic frameworks, right? And I think in, you know, any philosophy or any um, spirituality or even like um, everybody in startup talks about lean startup, right? So when I look at Lean Startup, when I first looked at it, having been trained more from a science perspective, I'm like, oh, it's a scientific method for business, <laughs> right? It was, I'm like, oh, it, it's been around for hundreds of years, right? So I'm a, I'm a, I I see the commonalities. So I'm an aggregate thinker, and I see the commonalities in very disparate things. So because of that, I can see often see trends sometimes because I'm like, oh, ride sharing goes with the sharing economy, goes with the kind of like whether it's genuine or not, a kind of increased level of trust among thousands rather than dozens, which it used to be when it used to be a different kind of community, right? All of those things kind of tie in together, right? And so I've always seen things like that. Um, And so when I was um, uh, like in middle school, um, I remember hearing about Moore's Law. And I thought, oh, Moore's Law. And in my head, that just played out very quickly. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's going to mean that we're going to be able to hold in the palm of our hand, I don't know exactly what form it's going to take, but just a ton of information way more than we can imagine right now because it's just exponentially growing, right? The potential, and it's getting smaller and smaller. To me, that made absolute sense, right? But I told that to a few people, and they thought I was crazy, right? So a few instances happened like that in my life where I would say things and people wouldn't get it, right? So I especially being Asian and female, 
then you start to go, oh, okay, I must be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I backed off of that. Um, but I, you know, it's like, as you say, you just know. There's certain things that I would know. I'm like, and there would be certain times like, um, very early on, we did some non-coding hackathons, uh, and I had a data scientist who had who had done a lot of hackathons and he codes, and he's like, "How are we going to do a non-technical hackathon?" And I'm like, "Trust me, it's going to work. I know it's going to be a huge success." <laughs> and he was very skeptical, um, and it was a success, and he couldn't believe it, right? Um, but there's certain things I just know will work, right? Um, and I think when I think about why, someone said to me once, oh, you're a meta-aggregate complex thinker. And I started to think about that and sort of try to dissect what that meant, right? And then all of a sudden, so much stuff fell into place. So... I had assumed everybody could see what I saw because I see structures, complex structures in my head. I'm very, um, I can see things play out in time, over time. And I'm also very comfortable with complexity. So like, you know, I love string theory because the concept of multiple dimensions, right? And there's a great book called Einstein's Dreams um, mm -hmm. where the possibilities of, you know, depending on what kind of dimension or what's happening with time, everything could be different, right? Um, to me, that's like, oh, yeah, I get it. That makes sense. Whereas some people, they're like, oh, my God, that's, you know, either they really resist it, they don't like it, they don't understand it. And so when I started to unpack that, I realized, oh, I don't think everybody sees what I see in my head. And then I started out asking people, I'm like, do you do you see things this way? And they go, no. And I realized, oh, I'm, I, I see things very differently from people. And then I met a researcher from Adelaide University, and she researches complex thinking. And she said, yeah, you know, people are on a curve. There's um, most people can handle a certain amount of complexity, and then you have the extremes where some people are very linear, and that's the only way they can think, and some people are very complex, and that's the only way they can think, right? And so, you know, I I, I think I'm at the higher complexity side, um, but what's interesting is that I also think that people who who may have emotional disorders or brain disorders, mental disorders, who knows? They may be seeing things we don't see necessarily. That doesn't mean that they're able to function well in our in the world, right? But who knows what they may be seeing, right? Um, aut autistic people, now we understand, can see things, right, that we can't. Um, People who are tend to be highly intelligent tend to be predisposed to bipolar disorder. So I think, you know, all of that is very interesting. So, you know, while I may not um, want to be schizophrenic, you know, I can also accept that maybe 
that might mean something different than purely a mental disorder. So I can hold a lot of those things in my head. And so what I realize is, you know, I'm, I'm not a 2D thinker. I'm not linear. I'm not even a 3D thinker. I'm 4D because there's another dimension, and oftentimes it is time, but it might be something else where I'm comfortable with the, the possibilities and probabilities. And that also includes, as I mentioned to you, you know, I believe in uh, reincarnation because to me, I like one life, it just doesn't seem enough. It does <laughs> many lives and trying to figure it out over many lives. That makes much more sense to me, you know. Mm -hmm. Have you had any kind of psychic or otherworldly experiences that may have been... I don't know, like not not considered the norm or um, generally accepted by people? Um, yeah. And I think I, um, I wouldn't call them psychic per se, partly because, you know, people freak out with that term, right? So, like, um, I can sometimes and almost... And that's why I like saying it. <laughs> <laughs> and good for you. <laughs> I work in the business world, so I'm like, I call it something else, right? I think, um, so I came to the U.S. and started first grade without knowing any English. So I think that forced me to have to learn how to understand people um, in different ways than most people have to, right? So... I think that I learned a lot. Uh, I can read body language better. Um, some some of my friends, own friends, have called me a witch because they say I'm almost psychic. Um, and I see things. Um, I see things about people that, uh, you know, some spook some people out. So there was one time where when I was really young and I was – when I was younger, I was more open to things. As I get older, I'm trying to be more focused, right? Trying to get shit done. So um, I was walking and it started to pour rain. And I was like, ah, and I didn't have an umbrella. So I stood under a stoop for a little bit. And I'm like, I want to get home because this is not going to let up soon. This guy came by with an umbrella. I'm like, sorry, could I just jump under your umbrella and walk for a little bit? Because he was heading in my direction. And I just kind of like said something like, oh, so you play guitar? And he's like, yeah, how did you know? And he clearly was freaked out. I'm like, aren't you carrying a guitar? And I looked over, it was not a guitar. It was a backpack. <laughs> so he was totally freaked out, totally wigged out. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get off here. And I just left it. But I, I, yeah, I really freaked him out. So. Do you find that you use the skill to, to look at which kind of areas in tech that you want to focus on? Like AI. It's um, not so much tech. Mm -hmm. This helps more with like, um, where are we going as humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what kind of tech do we need and want, right? Um, the tech is tech, right? But how humans respond to technology, how we're adopting technology, and then how we are increasingly 
I think not really thinking fully long-term, longitudinally about the implications of certain technologies and what it's doing to us as people and as a society. Um, that's where this is, I think, more helpful, my ability to see things. Um, so uh, I try to look for... Uh, we don't we don't do any gaming. We don't do crypto. We don't do any, any advertising. Um, while I know those are big industries, there's a lot of money to be made there. Uh, I don't think that it adds to our experience um, in really – I know a lot of people might differ with me about that, especially about gaming. But I think it doesn't add to our evolution as human beings, not really. Mm. Um, and what does? I think, uh, so we're looking for the transformative technologies that will. So one of the companies that I'm working with right now, they're a medical AR company, and they take augmented reality, and they're creating two different products. And one is a product that is used in medical schools to teach anatomy. So unlike a cadaver where you have to cut it up, it's expensive, you have to store it, it can get smelly, right? Uh, you can only have so many students touching it one time. You can have students with holographic headsets on, right, looking at um, uh, AR anatomy body. You can blow that body up. You can turn it around. You can turn it inside out. And... Everybody can looking at the, be looking at the same thing at the same time. They're also developing a second product to take into the operating room. And I think we think of medicine as a very highly evolved technical field. Um, but the founder, who is a doctor, he says one of the biggest sayings in medicine is, we'll see what we see when we get in there. <laughs> because literally, even with all the imaging you can't know what you're going to see until you cut someone open. And I'm like, wow, that is really astounding, right, in this day and age. So with the AR, they can overlay, they, they knit together several, many uh, 2D images, create 3D holographic images, and then they overlay it on a patient. And then they can see and plan their surgery much better. And this has huge implications for everything from liability issues, which are huge, to um, better recovery for people who are undergoing the surgery, to um, a better experience all around, right? I think that's just the beginning phase. I also think that once this starts to be used, we'll find out new benefits and potential um, returns on this kind of technology. Coming up, you'll hear an intuitive reading that I did for June. Are you interested in getting your own intuitive reading? Are you wondering how you can align more with your purpose? I offer introductory sessions to my Discover Your Purpose readings and coaching. As part of the All Possibilities community, you get 10% off the intro session. 
you get a one-on-one -on -one phone call with me where I'll do an assessment of your life and give you an intuitive reading on the highest guidance for you at this time. You'll get actionable steps that you can get started on to create the life you want. Just use All Possibilities 2018 as the promo code. That's All Possibilities 2018. Visit beingmypurpose.com for more information on my services. June, I did an intuitive reading for you beforehand, and how this works is I first meditate and reflect on your name. I mean, really, that's um, the only identifier I need. And I ask, what is the highest guidance for you at this time? And then I channel information. So usually it comes through as thought forms. And so I'll, I'm just the scribe. I'm just typing. So I receive sentences, paragraphs, and then every so often I might hear, okay, it's time for an image. And so I'll close my eyes and I'll see um, kind of like streaming video, if you want to call it that. Um, I wonder, you know, how it compares to when you say you see things, um, you see it in your mind's eye and, and then I write that down. I might feel emotion. I might know certain things, but really I just type it all down and how I view this information is, um, given everything that's going on in your life, what is the one thing that I can share with you that can help you move forward, um, in a way that aligns with who you are? on a soul level. And so let's see, I have it in my phone here and I'll just read it to you verbatim. Okay. And just as you listen, follow the imagery, everything seems to come through as metaphors. So I have a, um, I think it's just conveys a lot of information in pictorial form. And I also have an action step. So usually this is something for you to reflect on, and um, take action in the present moment. So I'll read it to you verbatim, and then afterwards I'll ask you, how does this resonate? What does it bring up for you? So thoughts, memories, stories, emotions, ideas, whatever bubbles up for you, and then we can use that as a starting off point for a conversation. Everything refers to you as in the third person. So it refers to you as June, as she, her, those pronouns. And... Um, uh, I think that's that's all you need to know. All right. So what is the highest guidance for her at this time? And it says, you saw images of little farm animals, little cows, pigs, chickens. It reminded you of the little plastic children's toys. It is about the wonder of play and discovery, but from a very specific angle. One of using education and play to engender behavioral changes and knowledge. It is the way the different animals engage with one another, each one a different species that speaks a different language, and yet all contribute to the creation of something bigger. In this case, the ecosystem of a farm. Where she gets tripped up is when she thinks she is the farmer, taking care of them and spurring the creation. Instead, she is a facilitator, 
She helps bring out the best in each and helps them understand each other, get along, and help them further their visions. And so the image that I saw is a continuation of this metaphor. It says, you saw all the animals together hanging out by a central watering hole. So I saw kind of like a body of water, like a, little, like a pond or something. They were surrounded by trees, grass, blue sky, and a sense of serenity and togetherness. Reflect on what each of these aspects can be. What is the watering hole? What contributes to the environment? And what exacerbates or is antagonistic to this sense of togetherness? While each animal is doing their own thing, they are still considered one unit. And so the action step is to reflect on this and how this pertains to her work and relationships. What environments feel like this farm? What strays from this ethos? So that's the end of the reading. I love to hear how this resonates and what it brings up for you. So thoughts, stories, emotions, ideas, whatever so bubbles up for you. What comes to mind immediately is that what I'm in the process of launching with the Innovation Roadmap and the coaching framework and after three years of running Serval Ventures is that um, especially in emerging tech, there's not enough talent. Um, I really don't think a couple people, co-founders can do it, really create the kind of products I want to see. And so I am launching a Serval Lab. And it's exactly what you described, which is an ecosystem, and I use that word a lot, um, an environment where it's a community of very dis disparate and dis diverse kinds of people because I think the diversity really adds to the potential for creativity. Um, and also, we just don't see that enough in the startup sector, and I want to see more women and people of color founders um, heading high-growth tech companies. Um, and really coming together to work together, to help each other, um, to create things that don't currently even exist. So I think um, the water is the potential, right? It's a source as well as nourishment and the potential for everything that has to happen. So that's everything from um, their abilities, their capabilities, their passion, everything they bring, as well as the technological know-how that they have. And then when you talk about things like the trees and the sky and all of that, that's the rest of the ecosystem. That's what helps fuel, right, and inform and and keeps the whole system healthy. You can't have a farm that has only a pond. You need shade. You need trees. You need grass. You need um, the whole environment so that 
then there's everything for food from, you know, the grass for, you know, the animals to the bugs that live in the grass for the animals to um, the sun that helps the grass grow and the trees grow, all of that shade for rest and protection, the roots of the trees that really spread out and undergird the whole system and clean the water, all of that. So that's immediately what comes to mind when you talk about that. So I feel like, okay, I'm on the right path. Yeah, it's a it's a metaphor where um, the best use of it I see is kind of always asking yourself, like, am I with this decision or with this um, potential path that I'm going on, like from, from a business angle, am I, is this contributing to the farm? Is this contributing to the ethos that I want to create? Is this contributing to the the feeling of um, everyone working together, part of a bigger whole, like part of that unit that it talks about and creates that sense of togetherness? Because it is, as you described, every single one of these companies is different. And when you talked about, you know, when before you had said, I want to work across verticals, that's what a farm is. Every single type of animal is there, and yet they all contribute to the creation of something bigger. Um, it also mentioned uh, one point, which is what trips her up is when she thinks she's the farmer, where you're kind of creating it. How how do you see that playing out, or what, what does that bring up for you? That makes sense. I mean, when... Uh, I think when we were trying to run the accelerator rounds, we were trying to, I think, give uh, more straightforward frameworks. Um, but now um, the lab is really more about creating uh, kind of an ecosystem that kind of fuels itself, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm working on building and launching that ecosystem, but I don't necessarily want to control it because I think um, emerging tech and what I envision with the possibilities of emerging tech is so much more complex than any single person can do. And we're going to need lots of really smart people to put in a lot of themselves to make this work, right? Um, and to build things that are going to make our lives better for us to be able to have better lives um, all around, right? Not just the 1%, not the people who are just fortunate, but like everybody, right? And if we're going to do that, uh, a lot of people have to be involved. And so that also means that if you want to activate or get a lot out of a lot of different kinds of people, you can't control them. The best thing you can do is you can um, kind of energize or um, uh, kind of empower mm -hmm. and inspire them, right? And that's a tricky, tricky thing. Um, and I know some investors, uh, they feel like that's a, that's a, not a great way to work, 
right? Because you're not controlling things, right? Mm. Um, I actually have a lot of faith. So coming back to sort of like, you know, talking about faith and the different ways that we go about in the world, uh, I'm not religious, but I have a lot of faith in things because I have to have faith or else I wouldn't be doing this. This is hard work. Um, but the only way something bigger than myself um, is going to come about is if I have faith in other people. I have faith that if I help build this thing, right, that will enable other people to put their mark on it. And I have faith that they're putting their mark is not um, diminishing my contribution, right? That we're all co contributing to something that's bigger than the sum total. It's an exponential, right, um, potential. Um, I think that's true faith. And so I have faith in our ability to do this. Um, I have faith in my ability to do this. There are days when it's got off a hard and I feel like, oh my God. Um, but I also believe that this is, to me, when I think about what is the different ways that I can do my work and continue to build this company, I think to me, I don't see any other way to do it. I think this is sort of the next kind of obvious next step. It's interesting when you had talked earlier about where where humans are moving towards like how how human beings are evolving and then with the image of like the cow the chickens like the pigs the different different species of animals interacting with one another how do you see that from kind of from the perspective of this lab and how different companies interact with one another and maybe build off of each other's work, even if they are very different? And how do you see that in relation to where humans are evolving? So I think that, um, as I said, our focus is on data and tech. And if you think about the emerging tech that we're focused on, AI, blockchain, <clears throat> mixed reality, um, every kind of data, uh, more of more complex data, and then ultimately quantum computing. That all ha none of that works without data, right? And so, and technology, and so that's our two core focus. And I think that that really does cut across any kind of company. Right, so we could have a therapeutic um, AR or VR company, and the kind of issues they're dealing with about how they're handling data, how they're evolving technology that people are not comfortable with yet and know how to use very well, as well as um, creating really meaningful content. So in therapeutic VR, which I'm looking at right now, um, I'm talking to my sister, who's a movement coach, and I'm, I, she has a concept for a VR, but she doesn't know anything about VR, right? So I'm trying to get her to understand that I need certain things from her, and I can help her translate it into VR, 
right? So I know, I don't really know the work that she does. Um, she doesn't quite know what I do. But within the lab, I would hope that two people like us can get to know each other, right? And try things out so that they can help each other move to the next level, right? So, um, I'm sorry, and your other question was? <laughs> oh, yeah, how, how it relates to, I mean, this is zooming out, but where where you think people are evolving towards? Like, what, what does, like, if you can zoom out into the future, what do you think the world will look like? Well, um, or what do you want it to look like, and where do you think it's actually headed? <laughs> I don't know about what I want it to because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just one person. Um, but I think that it's interesting because human beings have evolved so much and we have the such immense ca capacity for compassion and, and um, kindness. And yet still to this day, we have horrific capacities for acceptance of um, poverty in our backyard and ill treatment of children. And I'm like, I just don't get that. And to me, it's a little mind boggling that we as human beings can hold both parts of the, ourselves in that. But that's very much also the whole concept of yin and yang, right? And especially in Eastern philosophies, um, that there is dark and light, right? So I think humans are always like that, right? Um, I don't know that we whether we'll ever have a utopia like Star Trek, Far Generation, where all the all the galaxies are at peace, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's possible. But I think what's possible is um, – and then when people talk about AI is going to kill us, I'm like, that's crazy talk, you know, because we're already hybrid beings, right? Like, you know, what I talked about with all this information in our palms, it happened. We're now wedded to our smartphones. Like anybody is wedded more to their smartphone than I think even – their husbands or wives or kids, right? <laughs> so with that, that, you know, we feel helpless and useless. So I think in some ways, I wouldn't put a value on evolution. But I think how, to me, what seems logical is that at some point, we'll evolve into more hybrid beings, right? Where Maybe it's technology, maybe it's something else will enable us to become um, consciousnesses that don't need corporeal bodies. That's one of my more far out ideas that I've floated out in the past and people are like, whoa. <laughs> but I mean, you know, people have already practiced with transcendence and, you know, billionaires have set up cryogenic accounts. <laughs> what What's that es essentially about? It's about trying to preserve some aspect of ourselves, right? So I think whether we become less individual, more collective, or we continue to be individual, um, I think we will potentially have the capability to escape our body and be able to 
you know, be consciousnesses that can still do things, right? Um, that will be pretty interesting. And I won't be here. I don't think I want to be here in a decrepit body to see that. And I don't think we're going to get to that soon enough for me to see that as a transcendent consciousness. But I think that could be possible. So that's my far out theory. <laughs> or maybe we're already there. <laughs> we just don't know it. Who knows? That's a, we're at time, right? June, how can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you? You can um, go to our website, servalventures.com, and sign up to be on our list. The website is a little bit out of date, although we're working on updating that. And um, we all, you can also follow us on Twitter, um, at servalventures.com. And um, um, I am on LinkedIn, June W. Choi. Um, although I'm not always very fast to respond to LinkedIn requests because I'm backed up. Um, but the best way to reach out is through servalventures.com. Ooh. Well, June, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your story with us and all your far out ideas. <laughs> thank you for having me, Julie. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. And for you... Let's see how you can play with this intuitive reading in your own life. Think about what environment can contribute to your health, to your joy, and to your sense of togetherness. I'm Julie Chan, and until next time, be on the lookout for all possibilities. Follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at All Possible Show. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, and on our website, allpossibilitiesshow.com. This show is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. No portion of the show may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for joining us. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.